Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a heat wave in the south across Florida, Texas, Arizona and California, with record temperatures impacting 54 million Americans about to see triple-digit highs this week. Arizona, and Phoenix in particular, will experience intense heat that could swelter for its longest period on record in 110-degree high temperatures, with California and the desert southwest having temperatures over 120 degrees in places, with Texas and Florida having the combination of excessive heat with stifling humidity. Joining us is Jeff Goodell, a New York Times best-selling author of seven books, including The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and The Remaking of the Civilized World, a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow and a contributing editor at Rolling Stone, He has covered climate change for more than a decade, and his latest book just out is The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. Then we'll look into Turkey's President Erdogan's successful blackmail leveraging Sweden's entry into NATO to get F-16s and entry into the EU, and speak with Ahmet Yela, a professor at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University and a fellow at the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. He formerly served as a professor and the chair of the sociology department at Haran University in Turkey and was a counter-terrorism police chief in Turkey. And we'll discuss how Erdogan and his family are the most corrupt or among the most corrupt heads of state in the world. Then finally, we'll look into how the corrupt crypto industry is throwing money at top Democrats in the House and Senate to influence legislation as attempts are made to regulate an industry which has seen millions lose their life savings while criminals use Bitcoin as a means of extortion in ransomware attacks. Joining us is Olivia Buckley, a researcher at Open Secrets, where her writing focuses on money in politics. Most recently, she co-authored a report on cryptocurrency, decentralized finance, and how the industry spends to shape regulation in its favor, available at opensecrets.org. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now, Jeff Goodell, who is a New York Times bestselling author of seven books, including The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the Remaking of the Civilized World a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow and a contributing editor at Rolling Stone. He has covered climate change for more than a decade, and his latest book just out is The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeff Goodell. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Jeff. And the three most populous U.S. states, California, Texas, and Florida, are now undergoing an incredible heat wave. In, in Arizona, it's the longest period of 110-degree heat temperatures on record, and it's affecting uh, UPS and Amazon drivers, etc. And, of course, concurrently you have floods in the, in the northeast. And since you're a climate change journalist and you've been covering this subject for some time, do you get the feeling, Jeff, that at a certain point there'll be a a consensus that climate change is real? I mean, I don't know how much more evidence people need, but is there a point at which the denial will end, do you think? Because it's also damn obvious what's happening. Yeah, well, I I wish that I could say that I do think that there will be a moment when there is a kind of awakening to what's really going on. Um, But I unfortunately don't think that's what's going to happen. I mean, I think that you know, there are still people who don't believe in gravity and things. I mean, so, and, and and I don't think that, you know, universal consensus is what's important here. I think what's important is that 
um, more and more people are seeing what's going on. The, the, you know, the basic science has become, you know, more and more clear, more and more uh, unquestionable. The politics are shifting. Clean energy is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Um, I think that, that there's a big social change happening. The question is, is it happening fast enough? And is the sort of impacts on our climate um, accelerating more rapidly than our politics on energy? And how are we doing in that regard? I mean, obviously, Biden made some strides, not as much as he hoped, but a lot of stuff's in the pipeline, right? And now you have immediate, an immediate crisis with heat in Texas, Arizona, Florida, and California. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the politics are not moving as fast as they need to move. And, um, you know, we're suffering these impacts because of that, right? The fossil fuel industry has an enormous amount of money, enormous amount of lobbying power. They have an enormous, get enormous subsidies. Um, They have a lot of political muscle, and that continues to be the case. Um, But, you know, know, it, it, it it is shifting. And, you know, in Texas, for example, where I live, you know, I live in Austin, and, you know, the acceleration of solar and wind there is just remarkable. I mean, we had this heat wave um, a couple of weeks ago. It lasted for 10 days. It was very brutal. And the reason the grid was stable and the reason that we didn't lose our power was because there's so much solar on, on the grid now. There's 25% of the grid during the heat wave was from solar. It was not only more reliable, it was cheaper. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing these things change. But the problem is we're very far behind. And, there, you know, we should have been making these changes that we're making now and how we create energy 30 years ago. Um, and so we have loaded our atmosphere up with CO2. That CO2 stays there for thousands of years. And we are going to have to face the fact that we're living on a hotter planet um, for a very long time. And as I mentioned earlier, the heat now in this, in Arizona is such that Amazon drivers have gone on strike. And according to one Amazon driver, the heat reaches 135 degrees in the rear of the truck and there's no cooling system. So these kind of stories, I mean, Amazon's supposed to be a sort of green-friendly company, is it not? Well, they like to to say that they are. You know, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people think that the heat is not, you know, a, a big problem. They think it's a, a kind of thing that we're, we're going to be able to sort of air condition our way out of. And this problem with Amazon drivers and postal workers and farm workers, anybody who works outside knows that this idea that we're just going to, you know, it'll, it'll all be fine, we'll just turn up the air conditioning is, you know, one of the big myths of our time. But the fact is, you know, a lot of people work outside and have to work outside. That's for our our economy and our culture to work, we need to have workers outside. We're not going to be able to air condition wheat fields and cornfields and where food grows. We're not going to be able to air condition the Arctic. We're not going to be able to air condition Antarctica to keep you know sea levels from rising. So this all of this heat has you know extreme implications. Well and it's not just the United States of course. Summer heat waves last year in Europe killed sixty one thousand people. And a few years ago, mm-hmm. I think, what was it, like 15,000 people died in Paris from a heat wave? It's not, you don't normally associate Paris with sweltering heat, do you? No, you don't. And, you know, one of the problems with that is that places like Paris are not prepared for it, right? They do not have air conditioning everywhere. They are not prepared for the kind of extreme heat that, you know, is more and more often occurring in places like that. One of the things with Texas, for example, where I live, is that, yes, we have, it's always hot in Texas, and so we're kind of prepared for it in a way. Um, But in places that are not prepared for it, there's no air conditioning. People don't know where to go to get away from heat. They don't understand how to handle heat. They don't understand the risks and dangers of it all. And it's a very different kind of equation in those places. And in, in in a strange way, these places that are not used to heat and then get suddenly hit by extreme heat waves are, that's the most dangerous kind of phenomenon um, related to heat. Well, there is this phenomenon called wet bulb temperature. 
which is frightening. And there are now increasing numbers of places on this planet where human beings simply cannot survive. And this is a 35 degree centigrade wet bulb temperature. That's equal to 95 degrees Fahrenheit with 100% humidity. You simply, after several hours, you die. Or alternatively, 115 degrees Fahrenheit and 50% humidity. And there are a number of places uh, around the world, in Pakistan, for example, where you have this phenomenon, but it's it's increasing around the world. So tell us more about, it's not the best title, actually, to describe how horrific this is, the idea that this planet is becoming inhospitable to human life. So tell us what you know about the wet bulb and how it perhaps should be renamed to make it more clear what the hell it means. Well, wet bulb is a, is a complex um, measurement that is a combination of... Um, you know, heat and humidity and, and solar radiation. Um, it's it's a, a sort of sophisticated heat index. Um, most people are familiar with what a heat index is, and that's just a sort of simple combination of um, of temperature and humidity. But, you know, these kinds of measurements are important because, you know, understanding these different kind of qualities of heat are really important in understanding the different kinds of risks and dangers of heat. For example, I mean, wet heat, higher wet bulb temperatures are more dangerous um, than dry heat because the way that our bodies dissipate heat is by sweating. And in humid conditions and high wet bulb conditions um, or high heat index conditions, the sweat doesn't dissipate and evaporate from our bodies. So there's no way to cool down. And it's much riskier than the kind of dry heat that you would feel in you know, Phoenix or in the desert or something like that. So let's talk a little about the incident that you profile in your new book, Jeff Goodell, The Heat Will Kill You First, the story of these young parents up in the Bay Area, Jonathan Gerrish and Ellen Chung. They were young and healthy and fit, but the whole family died in temperatures that were 109 degrees. Now, of course, you have temperatures higher than that now in California, Florida, Arizona, and Texas. Right. You know, they were a family. They had recently moved up to the uh, Sierra Nevada foothills near Yosemite and had bought a house up there and went for a hike um, kind of to explore the the sort of foothills around their, around their house. And it was a, you know, they hiked a lot before. It was a seven-mile hike that they were on. Um, they were aware of the fact that it was supposed to be hot that day. They started early at 7.30 in the morning. They thought they were going to be fine. They had their one-year-old baby and their dog with them. It was just a little family jaunt. And um, they hiked down to a river. And then by the time they got to the river and and sort of rested down there, it was about 11 o'clock in the morning, and they started this two-mile climb out of the canyon um, back towards where their car was parked. And that um, hike up the side of the mountain was fully exposed to the sun. It was, you know, 105, 107 degrees. And into those kinds of situations, when you're also, you know, generating a lot of heat by hiking, it becomes very dangerous very quick. And because, sadly, tragically, the entire family died on the on the hike. No one knows exactly what happened, but it's probably likely that the dog got into trouble first. It was a big Akita with a heavy coat, and then probably um, the child. And it's likely that the parents, as any parents would, began to panic and worry and tried to hurry running out of, of the, uh, of the Canyon. And, um, that just generated more heat and, you know, they were found dead laying on the trail, uh, the next day. And, um, uh, it was a, it's a great and tragic example of even people who are experienced in the outdoors, who have been warned about heat, think they understand heat can succumb to something like that. And, you know, a similar thing happened to me in a, on a hike in, in, in Nicaragua once on a very humid day. You know, we don't understand the risks of heat. And what's one of the reasons why I wrote this book is to help people understand how dangerous heat really is. You know, it can come down, you know, and strike you like a lightning bolt and you can be dead in a few hours. So that's, I think, what's extraordinary and so important about your book, not just the horrible anecdote that you just told us, but the fact that we just 
aren't afraid of it. We're afraid of <laughs> lightning and tornadoes and floods. And but we we don't seem to understand that heat is a killer, right? Exactly. I mean, even people who are you know knowledgeable in good shape um, uh, and you know sort of climate savvy as I was when I got into trouble on my hike, I had no idea what was happening to me. It was, uh, you know, I was climbing this steep hill on a humid day, and I started sweating profusely, and my blood, my my heart started pounding uncontrollably, and I got dizzy and. It happens very, very quickly, and um, that's how heat works, and it's it's very dangerous. And um, we, and, and that includes myself, prior to writing this book, are very um, poorly educated about what the risks are, about what to do, about how to take breaks, about you know we have we have no federal laws for heat protection for workers, for example. You know, there's just a, a vast gulf of ignorance about how dangerous this is. And as our client heats up, being smart about this kind of thing becomes more and more important. Well, as you mentioned, Amazon drivers are going on strike in Arizona. They just can't work. Yeah. But yeah, we mentioned the sort of lag in terms of political moves and programs to deal with this reality, irrespective of how much denial is still out there. We don't have time, do we, to dither on this. And the problem with global warming is that you've got denial has slowed things down, but now when people and governments are starting to take it seriously, there's still enormous lag, and the window is closing rapidly and on the point of no return in terms of global warming because of the feedback loops. So... What's your prognosis here in terms of, as you were saying earlier, you can't air condition your way out of this problem. And that's the problem, I think, in, in the broader sense about uh, dealing with climate change is when you talk about mitigation. At a certain point, there's no mitigating, right? So the alarm is being sounded, and mitigation seems like a palliative. Well, mitigation is really important because what is causing our atmosphere to heat up is increased CO2 in the atmosphere, so every molecule of uh, CO2 that that you know goes into the sky because we're burning coal or oil or natural gas, you know, increases the warmth. So mitigation, you know, is really important, and the, by far the first job um, in thinking about this and thinking about our future and where things go is um, stopping the uh, emissions of fossil fuels because that's the only thing that will stop the temperature rise. And I also, you know, would challenge the idea that the door is closing. I don't think that there's a door that closes. I think that it, there's a, you know, things get more and more chaotic. Things get more and more, um, you know, extreme. But, you know, there's not a point of no return. There is, um, it's never too late. Every, every kind of um, political uh, you know, a bit of progress matters. Every personal gesture that one does, every personal change of their of our lifestyle. I mean, I really do think that this is an opportunity to, you know, build a better world, to um, to change our lives and to reinvent them in a sort of cleaner and healthier and better way, um, using energy that you know is clean energy that would have to blow up mountains and mine things and. I mean, I just think it's a, it's a, I view it as an opportunity for, for transformation and change that the, the sooner we grasp it, the better off we will be. Yeah, I think I, I got my terms wrong. It's not so much mitigation, but the idea that there's resilience, that there's technical fixes, right? That somehow we can suck the CO2 out of the air and technology will save us. That's what I was meaning. Right. Well, yeah. And, and more broadly, you know, that we're not going back to the old world, you know. Um, we're not going back to the kind of climate that we had, you know, when we were growing up. Uh, and by that, I mean anybody basically who's, you know, in their 20s or above. Um, you know, we're living in a, in a, on a different planet now. And, and um, we've made that planet. And we're the ones who have to deal with it. And we have to think differently about our lives. We have to think differently about how we live. Um, there's no room or um, sort of authority for any kind of nostalgia. We're not going backwards. It's a question of 
how for how we go forward and what the world we're going to build out of this looks like. Right, and so just in closing, the doom and gloom scenarios and the extent to which it may paralyze people into inaction, you're equally concerned about that, and the book is an antidote to that, is it not? Yeah, I'm very concerned about that because, you know, um, you know, I've been writing about climate change for 20 years. People always ask me, you know, why aren't you, you know, an alcoholic, you know, living in your basement and despairing of humanity? And, and, and I don't feel that way at all. I feel tremendously optimistic and I feel tremendously um, hopeful that we will be able to not um, kind of go back to the world the way it was, but to create and build a new and better world. It's really important to grasp that climate change and the climate crisis we're facing is not like a broken ankle that we can just you know take a few weeks off and then we're going back to playing softball every weekend and everything's fine. This is a profound, you know, um, existential change that we're going or we're going through, and we need to grasp how urgent and how dangerous it is. But at the same time, we have a lot of tools, we have a lot of intelligence. There's a lot of things that we can do to make it better and to build a better world. And I think it's really important to not get trapped in a binary conversation about are we doomed or are we not. We're not doomed, uh, but we have a lot to do. And it's a very urgent um, situation that we're in. Well, Jeff Goodell, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Jeff Goodell, who's a New York Times bestselling author of seven books, including The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the Remaking of the Civilized World a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow and a contributing editor at Rolling Stone. He has covered climate change for more than a decade, and his latest book just out is The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. We're going to take a B-Station break. We're back looking into Turkey's President Erdogan's successful blackmail, leveraging Sweden's entry into NATO to get F-16s and entry into the EU. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ahmed Yella, who is a professor at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University and a fellow at the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. He formerly served as a professor and the chair of sociology department at the Haran University in Turkey and was a counter-terrorist police chief in Turkey. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ahmed Yella. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Well, thanks for joining us. And now that Erdogan has uh, suddenly allowed Sweden into NATO, it looks as though the negotiations really weren't with Sweden and Turkey, but they were between the U.S. and Turkey over F-16s. Do you think that's what is responsible for this sudden change in Erdogan? There are, I think, a few factors, uh, definitely more than one. <laughs> Yes, uh, Turkey wanted F-16s uh, really badly, and that played a huge factor. And the United States, particularly the Biden administration, had that um, at their hands to negotiate with Erdogan. But two weeks ago, there was a Reuters news piece about U.S. and Sweden opening up a case against Erdogan's son, Bilal, uh, Bilal Erdogan, apparently Bilal demanded bribe from a company who wanted to invest, a Swedish company who wanted to invest in Turkey. So there was a new investigation about that and it leaked to the uh, media. Immediately after uh, it was on the uh, news and people started to share it on social media, Turkey instituted bans on those accounts and news pieces. I think over 200 internet links were banned mentioning about that case. So I'm 100% sure there are more things behind the scenes. The, the Biden 
administration used to negotiate with Erdogan to basically uh, have him accept the NATO deal. Well, we know that Erdogan's son-in-law produces the drones that Ukraine is using, right? Uh, yes. And Ukraine is going through thousands of these drones, and I think they manufacture them now in, in Ukraine. So how much is the war in Ukraine benefiting the Erdogan family? Oh, it is benefiting the Erdogan family hugely. They are making a lot of money uh, by selling um, those drones to Ukraine. That's for sure. And so you think that the Erdogan son's attempt to bribe the Swedish company was maybe used by the Biden administration to get Erdogan to stop his blockage or objection to Sweden entering I think it's, NATO. It's part of the deal. It's part of the deal. That's right. how I see it. Yeah. Because, right. like, if you think about from the perspective of the Turkish uh, public, Erdogan is known to be the the most corrupted politician in Turkey in the Turkish public history. And why why did they why did they vote for him then? There are a few reasons. He controls the media extensively. Like there is no opposition voice. He shut down all the opposing media, almost all of them, like very few left. Um, and he knows how to kind of mobilize people from the perspective of religion, uh, portraying himself as the savior of conservatives in Turkey uh, and now the nationalists. Uh, so basically, there is this huge division in Turkey right now who consider themselves nationalists and conservatives. Um, and he uses that he uses the, uh, that notion to mobilize people behind him. But also the elections were corrupted as well. So there are like a few factors that play uh, behind the support he receives. And at the same time, they say he is our guy. Yes, he steals, but he also feeds us. Like over 20 million people are getting government aid under his administration. So the majority of those people are not working. They just being they are just being paid under the notion of social services. And they don't want to lose that opportunity, that privilege. And they see. believe Erdogan is paying and the new administration is not going to pay them. But on the other hand, the Turkish economy is in terrible shape, isn't it? It is. There is no dollars left in the central bank. The economy literally tanked. The inflation is literally over 100%. Uh, the food prices are really, really high. People cannot afford like their basic daily needs. Uh, and like this is the biggest trouble for Erdogan. And that's one of the reasons he is trying to reapproach the West so that he can bring in some investments to ease the economical pressure he is feeling like very, very deeply. So is that the reason why he's sort of moving away from his romance with Putin to move back into the NATO fold and now making a push to join the EU, which is an ongoing attempt on a part of Turkey? Now that the elections are over, he doesn't need the anti-Western rhetoric anymore. Just before the elections, he and his people were bettering the West, the United States particularly, and the Europeans. He was seen as like the enemy of the United States. His ministers were attacking the CIA, uh, and other U.S. institutions, or openly uh, badmouthing the uh, Americans. So basically, he gathered a lot of support with his anti-Western rhetoric before the elections. But he won the elections, so he got what he wanted. The biggest hurdle is now the economy, and only the West can help him. This NATO issue was an opportunity for him, so most probably... He got some promises from the Biden administration and um, some of the European countries that would help him to ease the economical pressure 
bringing some um, money to help him to run the country. That's how I read it. So it's not that he trusts the West. It's not that he likes the West or he is in line ideologically with the West. He just needs the West now after the elections to fix the economy. And you don't think that the fact that Putin looks so weak in having this challenge by Boghossian, who he threatened to arrest and then turn around and had a three-hour meeting with him. And is that a factor? I mean, the, the Russians think, are furious. Yeah, They're uh-huh. furious with Erdogan yeah, because of yeah. the deal they made over the prisoners from Mariupol, who <laughs> Erdogan turned over to Zelensky when he met with Zelensky a few days ago and, and said he would help get Zelensky into NATO. No, I think... I, I completely understand you. I think there are two um, aspects of it. The first, Erdogan realized that Putin doesn't have any money anymore. So Russia would not be able to support um, Turkey economically, financially. And in fact, uh, Turkey owes a lot of money to Russia and Putin postponed those debts, um, most, mostly through the purchase of oil and natural gas. The second is, yes, he sees Putin politically weak. But on the other hand, we need to understand Erdogan has been trying to balance the West by using Putin. He purchased S-400 missile systems. Russia is building a nuclear uh, power plant in Turkey. So like Erdogan is in bed with Russia and it is very difficult to separate uh, Erdogan's administration from Russia after this point. Like all those investments um, cost billions of dollars, um, and you just cannot say, okay, I don't want them anymore. So, given this, uh, the blackmail with Sweden entering NATO seems to have worked, and Sweden's now pledged to help Erdogan get into the EU, what are the chances? I mean, why has it taken so long? Is it come down to the basic EU requirement that you have to be democratic and and abide by the rule of law and not be corrupt and autocratic like Erdogan is? I mean, he's uh, he's not a Democrat, is he? He's, he, not, a, he's not a Democrat. He is literally um, an autocrat, almost like to be dictators. Uh, I think there are three reasons behind it. The first is there is no rule of law in Turkey. Erdogan demolished the whole justice system. And you cannot trust any institutions, particularly the justice system, uh, because you cannot oversee what's going to happen. The judges are bound to listen to Erdogan's orders or his people's orders. And you cannot get justice out of the Turkish justice system. The second is the Turkish bureaucracy, through the leadership of Erdogan, is deeply corrupted. The European Union is not trusting Turkey to run projects, and they are not handing out grant money to the Turkish institutions because they know the money is not going to be used for the purposes they are granting. The third is there is no democracy, like real democracy in Turkey. So how come Turkey with these um, conditions can become a European Union member? That's the problem, I guess. Right. So then... Given that Turkey is not likely to be joining the EU at any time soon, and the economy is in free fall, and he can't get any money from Russia, even though he's getting oil and gas at a discount, he's turning to the West. So this is just a tactical move. Is the West likely to bail him out? I mean, nobody likes him, do they? Nobody likes him, but there is one advantage he has. And he has been using it very uh, cleverly, which is migration to Europe. So he is threatening to Europe to open the floodgates of migrants from Turkey to Europe. There are over 3 million Syrians and thousands of thousands of Afghans, Pakistanis, uh, Iranians and other immigrants in Turkey. Um, and they want to reach to Europe and they want to use Turkey as a bridge to Europe. And the Europeans have been pressuring Erdogan to keep them in place, not allow them to go to Europe. Um, and Erdogan is basically blackmailing Europe uh, with those immigrants. I'm 100% sure 
this was one of the issues they talked um, behind the scenes, behind the closed doors. Mm. Well, it's tragic that he won the recent election, and it's not surprising because the most likely candidate to beat him, he was unable to run or was was basically threatened with a jail if he ran. Yes, um, and that's the mayor of Istanbul. Uh, yes, and he's Imamur. yeah, and he was charged with insulting Erdogan. I mean, that's yep. a law in Turkey for God. They, they've jailed all these academics, they've jailed all the journalists, and they've passed a law that you can't insult Mr. And Erdogan. I mean, what kind of a... There are kids at the age of 14, 15, who are being investigated just because they retweeted somebody else's tweet, which Erdogan deems insulting. So... We are also talking about like children who are being investigated because of these issues. There is a very powerful control over the people and over social media uh, to kind of protect Erdogan and hide his wrongdoings, particularly his corruption, his feminist corruption. And they go after every account uh, on social media and make sure that they are banned in Turkey. For example, Twitter after Elon Musk agreed with Turkey's requests because Erdogan told Twitter that if the accounts he requested to be banned in Turkey are not closed to the Turkish public, he was going to ban Twitter altogether in Turkey. And Elon Musk accepted that. There are hundreds of people who live in the West and the Turkish people cannot see their tweets because they are banned in Turkey by Twitter due to the record of the Turkish government. So if you are living in Turkey right now and if you are like a middle class and don't have the means to circumvent um, the social media through a VPN, you are living in a bubble. And everything other than the economy is in very good condition. And, and Erdogan is a perfect leader because they cannot hear anything else. He controls all the rhetoric through the media and people hear what he wants them to hear. And just in closing, you see him as being the, the most corrupt leader, one of the most corrupt leaders in the world. Is that, is that what you said earlier? Yes, he is one of, if not the most, but for sure one of the most corrupted leaders in the world, he and his family. We are talking about tens of billions of dollars. The opposition leader said um, during one of his um, addresses before the election, he corrupted Turkey over 200, 200 billion dollars with B. Well... Ahmed, yeah, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Sure. Anytime. And again, I've been speaking with Ahmed Yella, who is a professor at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University and a fellow at the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. He formerly served as a professor and the chair of the sociology department at Haran University in Turkey and was a counterterrorism police chief in Turkey. We're going to take a B station break back looking into how the corrupt crypto industry is throwing money at top Democrats in the House and Senate. Oh, the grocers, though we have fun. Tax collectors getting closer. Still we have fun. There's nothing sure. The rich get rich and poor get poorer. In the meantime, in between time, ain't we got fun? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Olivia Buckley, who's a researcher at Open Secrets, where her writing focuses on money in politics. Most recently, she co-authored a report on cryptocurrency, decentralized finance, and how the industry spends to shape regulation in its favor, available at opensecrets.org. Welcome to Background Briefing, Olivia Buckley. Thank you for having me. 
Well, thanks for joining us. And I find it astounding, Olivia, that anybody would invest in crypto, particularly after the collapse of the FTX exchange and the fact that Sam Bankman-Fried posted $250 million bond after throwing money at politicians. The market lost $200 billion in the collapse. And yet some people are still investing in it. And from the very beginning, I never understood how it made any sense that you would spend real money to buy fake money. Can you explain it to me? Sure. Um, So I think one of the big issues at hand here and one of the reasons that we wanted to uh, publish an issue profile covering cryptocurrency um, is that the technology that underpins these blockchain-based digital currencies um, are pretty opaque for the average person or the average consumer. Um, So that adds kind of a layer of obfuscation on top of the typical gulfs in understanding that tend to arise around money and politics. Um, And of course, that's our sort of main angle on the issue. Well, cryptocurrency has been banned in nine countries, most notably China, right? And Yes. And it also has an incredibly detrimental environmental effect because it requires so much electricity. And apparently it uses more electricity than a lot of small countries, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and the, the massive emissions that we're talking about here um, that are connected to crypto mining are a direct result of the sort of decentralized structures that a lot of these uh, crypto transactions are um, validated on. So while you hear a lot of crypto uh, proponents kind of touting the decentralization of these, um, what they think of as currencies, um, that in fact can cause a lot of other kind of knock-on effects Um, And that has been the subject of, I think, a lot of attention around um, how the government is going to handle the issue of cryptocurrency and uh, blockchain technologies from a regulatory standpoint. So let's talk about the crypto-related legislation that's come out in the last couple of years. There's a bill by Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, co-authored by Cynthia Loomis, Republican of Wyoming, called the Responsible Financial Innovation Act. Debbie Stabenow, a Democrat from Michigan, has sponsored the Digital Commodities Consumer Protection Act. And also the House Financial Services Chair, Representative Patrick McHenry, a Republican, and Glenn Thompson have announced a draft legislation. And then on top of that, you've got Senator Ed Markey and Representative Jared Huffman, They've reintroduced the Crypto Asset Environmental Transparency Act. So can you quickly walk us through some of these? Because some of them look as though what they've succeeded in doing is just attracting an enormous amount of money from crypto lobbyists. Sure. Um, So I think something that's important to note here is that a lot of the biggest proponents of cryptocurrency or of blockchain technology in Congress um, are in favor of a more formalized regulatory framework. Um, and I think that the hope is that that sort of regula- regulation will translate to less volatility in crypto markets of the kind that we've seen over the last couple of years. Um, But at the same time, these proposed regulatory frameworks aren't necessarily a kind of one and done solution for all of the risks that crypto can pose in the market, Um, especially when it comes to the sort of average person or average consumer that might be interested in putting some of their money into uh, crypto. So two of those bills that you mentioned, the Digital Commodities Consumer Protection Act and the um, Lemus-Gillibrand Act were a couple of the most lobbied bills um, in 2022. So uh, we can see or sort of extrapolate from that that uh, these entities within the crypto industry um, feel that they have some kind of vested interest in more formalized regulation, um, which is 
pretty far from being settled. Well, your report indicates that the top crypto industry donors in the 2022 election cycle was FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried's. They gave $1.6 million to Democrats and 800000 to Republicans. But his total contributions, according to your report, are 86716333 So where did that money go? So the, the bulk of that money um, is going to outside groups. So that includes um, entities like PACs and super PACs. Um, so the money for like in the case of something like FTX is coming from uh, people or entities that are associated with FTX. Um, and then is being kind of funneled into these outside groups that have more discretion um, as far as how to spend to influence certain issues. So while it might not be legal for um, a corporate entity to uh, give or contribute directly to a candidate, uh, they can kind of funnel a lot of that money into these other groups that have more discretion around that spending. Um, and when it comes to FTX, it's sort of an interesting case because although they did spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on lobbying um, in recent election cycles, what really a lot of the money went towards was these contributions to outside groups. Um, and that's related to the, the, you know, what is alleged to be this kind of straw donor scheme that Sam Bankman-Fried and other people associated with FTX are alleged to have run. Um, so it's not always kind of the most efficient route to spend that money in lobbying when it can go to outside groups that have more flexibility in how they spend it. So let's go through the list here, or at least some of the list here, on crypto industry contributions to members of Congress, okay? The number one recipient of crypto money is Ro Khanna. Yes. And he's considered a very liberal guy up there, and he represents Silicon Valley. The number two recipient is Charles Schumer, another Democrat. The number three recipient is Ron Wyden, another liberal Democrat. The number four recipient is Kirsten Gillibrand, another so-called liberal Democrat. Number five is Patrick McHenry, the chair of the House Committee we mentioned earlier, Republican. And then number six is Tom Emmer, a Republican Minnesota, who's considered a crypto evangelist, right? So let's talk a little about him. He's he's just completely all in with crypto, isn't he, Tom Emma? Yeah, so he's been um, definitely, I would say, one of the most prominent, if not the most prominent, crypto advocates in Congress. Um, so in, in 2020, he put on this crypto town hall, um, which, of course, predated all of the events of 2022 with the collapse of FTX, um, and the kind of catastrophic losses in the industry. Um, he was also an early uh, elected official to come out and say that he would accept contributions in crypto, um, which is that's addressed later in the profile. Uh, that's still kind of a, a, an emerging issue. Um, it's not really something that's standard at this point. Um, and one of his... Uh, sort of angles on the issue is that um, it, it doesn't necessarily pose undue risks to consumers um, for cryptocurrencies to proliferate at the scale that they have, um, which a lot of prominent critics of crypto in Congress, so people like um, Senator Elizabeth Warren would probably take issue with that kind of statement. Uh, but you also mentioned um, Congressman Ro Khanna uh, from California, who's, a, of course, a Democrat. Uh, and while he might not be pushing an identical line to somebody like Tom Emmer, um, he's also somebody who has advocated for crypto in the past as a technology that has a kind of populist or democratizing potential. Um, so I think those two are kind of emblematic of an interesting trend in Congress, which is that since this is such a new issue um, and a lot of the regulatory questions are still emerging, 
Um, it hasn't really been politicized along partisan lines the way that we see a lot of other issues at the federal level. Um, so Democrats and Republicans can sometimes have, who are proponents of crypto, can sometimes have more in common than we might expect as far as uh, why they might be defending or advocating for these technologies. But surely these Congress people and senators have to know that crypto has also been a massive invitation for criminality and fraud and money laundering. I mean, these ransomware attacks, when they lock up all the data on a hospital and then charge enormous amounts of money to free the data, otherwise the hospital and all the patient records will disappear in a certain number of hours. I mean, they always ask to be paid, these crooks, with crypto. I mean, it's just so obvious that it's attracted criminality. Amongst all of these various congressional proposals to regulate crypto, are they talking about the criminality and the need to stop it being a vehicle for criminality if, if such a thing is possible? Sure. So I, I think that that's something that's been sort of an increasing subject of discussion um, over time, especially within the last year since the collapse of FTX. Um, and, you know, there continue to be developments along those lines. I mean, just last month, uh, we saw the, the FEC file lawsuits against Coinbase and Binance, which are two of the biggest crypto exchanges. Um, so I think that it's sort of two sides of the same coin as far as the kind of decentralization that defenders of crypto will tout as one of its biggest benefits. Um, and then also the fact that these transactions are basically semi-anonymous, um, which creates opportunities, as you said, for all kinds of uh, scams and fraud. So one of the things that's addressed in the report is um, there, there was a, a paper from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that sort of details the different types of scams that people can be vulnerable to. Um, another problem that I think has yet to be meaningfully addressed in Congress is that people who use these crypto trading platforms, um, some of the major exchanges like Coinbase are usually subject to uh, mandatory arbitration agreements. So if they're victims of fraud um, or they have their assets stolen, uh, they can't always take the crypto exchange to court um, to kind of defend themselves on that front. So there are definitely a lot of holes in the regulatory system, um, some of which are addressed by some of the legislation that we talked about, um, but there are definitely definitely a lot of questions that have yet to be settled. Well, Robert Kennedy Jr., who's running for the presidency as a Democrat, he was the keynote speaker at the Bitcoin 2023 conference. And of course, Bitcoin, as I mentioned earlier, is, is what the ransomware crooks ask for, to be paid in Bitcoin. And he's obviously been touting it as well, along with other conspiracies, then, of course, although he denied being an investor in Bitcoin, apparently Robert Kennedy Jr. later disclosed that he has crypto holdings valued at $100,000. So how much is he an evangelist uh, like Congressman Emma? Yeah, I, I think it's um, a little bit surprising to see such a, a prominent person um, come out for, sort of forcefully in favor of crypto um, at this point in time, a lot of the people who we've we've addressed so far today, people like um, Ro Khanna and Tom Emmer, um, made sort of their most favorable statements toward crypto um, a few years ago before we saw a, the kind of collapse in value and a lot of these um, instances of alleged criminality that have come out in the last year or so. So um, for RFK Jr., after declaring his candidacy to um, come out so strongly in favor of crypto, I think is definitely notable. And he's been hawking a kind of similar line of this is sort of a populist technology that can uh, empower regular people and promote transparency. Um, although I'm, I'm not sure that he's gone much deeper on how he sees that playing out. 
Well, the government of uh, El Salvador decided to adopt Bitcoin, did they not? Crypto as their national currency, and that didn't go so well. I mean, it, it became a haven for uh, money laundering. Yeah, which gets at the um, the issue around you know transparency and um, semi anonymity that I mentioned earlier. Um, there has been kind of a, a competing proposal um, that I discussed in the profile um, for what's called a central bank digital currency. So this would be a digital currency um, that in theory, if it happened uh, in the U.S., would be issued by the Federal Reserve um, and provide kind of an alternative to these decentralized uh, currencies that we see proliferating now. Um, so I do think that that's interesting as a kind of um, centralized alternative uh, to that might provide some of the same benefits um, that people who want a digital currency option um, are kind of looking for. Right, but just to clarify the, these various bills that have been introduced, which I mentioned earlier in the discussion, I'm just wondering whether... I mean, if you introduce a bill and then suddenly all these crypto people throw money at you, I find that a little suspicious. So which of the bills are actually from people who want to regulate it and don't want to be taking money? Ed Markey's not taking any money. So is the Crypto Asset Environmental Transparency Act a better bet than the others? I mean, the fact that all these top Democrats are the major recipients of crypto money is in itself a little suspicious. Yeah, and that's a good question. Um, so the the environmental transparency legislation that you just mentioned um, is kind of addressing a, a different angle or a different set of questions um, than some of the bills that propose regulatory frameworks. Um, so while something like the um, Loomis-Gillibrand Act or the Digital Commodities Consumer Protection Act is basically concerned with what government entities uh, have the the standing and the authority to regulate cryptocurrency? Um, the environmental legislation um, is meant to address the emissions, the greenhouse gas emissions that come as a result of um, crypto mining. So those are kind of two different or completely different facets of of the problem. Um, both of which have yet to be settled by the law. Well, Olivia, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. And I think your report's very important and quite shocking to see how all these top Democrats are getting money from these people who so far haven't appeared to be totally above board. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. And again, I'll be speaking with Olivia Buckley, who's a researcher at Open Secrets, where her writing focuses on money and politics. Most recently, she co-authored a report on cryptocurrency, decentralized finance, and how the industry spends to shape regulation in its favor, available at opensecrets.org. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared